Deuteronomy chapter 5, and uh, I want to begin this series of messages on Christ uh, in all of the Scripture. We're looking at Christ in all of the Scripture. And so what we're going to do over the next six weeks, we have three Old Testament, three New Testament sermons. All of them hopefully portray for us a picture of Christ, who Christ is, inform us, give us what we need so we might know Christ better, and uh, both the Old and the New Testament. And I know that uh, some of you might be uh, new to finding Christ in the Old Testament. So today, hopefully, will be a blessing to you. In our modern mind, the first five books of the Bible seem antiquated. They seem out of date, out of touch. It's not uncommon for people who desire to read through the Bible every year to stop reading somewhere in these first five books. For some, I know the hurdle is Exodus. You die with the people in the wilderness. For some, it's Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, the repeating of the law is kind of tough for you, especially over there in chapters 18 through 26. All these regulations and rules are being laid out, and you just kind of lay off the reading plan, and you look up, and you're so far behind, you say, forget it, I'll try next year. For some, it's Leviticus. And uh, others, it might be numbers. But some, somewhere in those first five books, usually people uh, stop reading through the Bible, unfortunately. But it, it's so hard for us, isn't it, to identify as 21st century Christians with the writing of the first five books. I mean, just be honest. It's hard. It's a whole other culture. Not like a culture that you could go travel to Greece or over to the Middle East even today and, and see the culture. This is a completely different culture, different languages, different ways of expressing themselves, different foods, different laws and regulations. We're totally out of touch with what's going on back there, and so it makes it very hard. I've become convinced, though, that through these first five books of the Bible, God has laid a foundation so that we might understand the rest of the Bible. If you, in some ways, if you miss the first five books, you're going to miss the depth of the message of the Bible. In the first five books, we find the foundation for everything else. And it's with this conviction that I want to preach the sermon this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now, let me give you just an overview of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is broken down into sections. And the main section of the book is chapter 5 through chapter 26. And these are the words spoken by Moses. Now, you think my sermon this morning is long. Some of you, by the end of it, you think, man, good grief, we've got to keep going. Chapters 5 through 26 were a sermon, one sermon, preached by Moses on the side of a mountain in the open air with all of Israel gathered. That's what you're looking at, is the beginning of a spoken sermon. And he sermonizes through those first 26 books. They're on the verge of entering the promised land, the land that was promised to their forefather Abraham and has been carried this promise down to their generation. They're standing here on the plains of Moab waiting to go over into the land. Moses is not going to lead them into the land. So we're in the middle of a transition from one great leader to another leader. This is a crucial moment in the history of the nation of Israel. This book is more than a sermon or it, 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 though it has that feel, it's also uh, given to us as a renewal of the covenant. Now, the covenant is the operating force of the Old Testament. 
And here in the covenant, the mechanism of the covenant, the workings of the covenant are renewed with Israel before they go into the promised land. They've received the law. They received it at Mount Sinai previously. That's recorded for us in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 19, 20, 21 and following, we get the first giving of the law. But here in Deuteronomy, it's not a new law. That's a mistake often made because the title Deutero means second law. Deuteronomy means second law. That, that's a bad title. I think it would be better if we called it by its Hebrew name, These Are the Words Of. That's the way the Hebrews knew this book. These are the words of. And who are they the words of? They're the words of Moses. The, Moses is here preaching this public declaration of the love of God and the commitment of God to his people. I think we often miss that when we're looking here in, in Deuteronomy. We get so caught up on the fine details that we miss the fact that this is God's love communicated verbally to his people. God is renewing his commitment to his people. And they are given the opportunity to renew the commitment they have to God. I mean, this is a beautiful book in understanding the reality of grace throughout the whole of the Bible. In the 7th century, I believe this book was compiled. Um, I mean, excuse me. It, it's often been said that this book was compiled in the 7th century during Josiah's reign as king. Josiah, we learn from Kings and Chronicles, began a renovation project in the, in the temple and in the city of Jerusalem. And during that renovation process, the Bible tells us they found the law. And then he stopped the renovation project, goes in and has the law read to the people. And they recommit themselves to the Lord. And because of this, a lot of, lot of people began to think, well, this is where Deuteronomy came from. It was written by, uh, by scribes in the 7th century. They just kind of pulled it all together. But the reality is, the content of this book tells us it's much older than the 7th century. It's much older. It dates back to the time of Moses. The content of this book is centered on a ritual known as the covenant renewal ceremony. The people of Israel renew the covenant that they have with Yahweh before they enter the promised land at the end of Joshua's life after they've subdued the land during the days of Josiah when the people were called to recommit the covenant after a long period of idolatry. It's this book, Deuteronomy, that was found in the temple. So much far, far from being created in the 7th century, it was rediscovered in the 7th century. And I just want to make a point of connection for you here in this introduction. Some of you need to find God's Word again. And you need to renew your commitment to Him. God's people have, through the years, systematically, cyclically, left God's Word forgotten it, put it on the shelf. And some of you coming in here today, you've done that in your personal life. The church suffers when she loses sight of the foundation of God's Word, and you personally suffer as a Christian because you don't read, study, and know God through His Word. So I just stop right here and say, you may have a connection with both the people that Deuteronomy was preached to, who are being told, don't forget what God has done for you, don't forget what you must do now that you serve God, some of us need to hear that message, don't we? And for some of us, we're in the position that Josiah and his people were. We've left the Bible. We've forgotten it. It's collecting dust under a stack of books. 
That's a bad condition to be in. And I challenge you today, if you're there, pick up the Word of God. Begin to read anew. Call on God to renew in you a right spirit of love and devotion to Him. The book of Deuteronomy can bring about a revival for you um, if you just give it the opportunity. So here they are, the people of Israel waiting to go into the promised land, this renewal ceremony taking place. And Moses is the one preaching, holding court. Here in chapter 5 is the beginning of what we know as the Ten Commandments. Now I want to read, beginning in verse uh, I want to read for you beginning in verse 6. And I want to read through our text, which is 12 through 15. But I want you to hear the way God phrases the giving of the law. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Okay? Now, in this covenant, God is already saying, you are my people. Do you see that? I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking the law is the basis of the relationship. The law is not the basis of relationship. That's why we misread it so often. We think, man, they had to do all these things to have a relationship with God. Notice in verse 6, he's telling them at the onset, you are my people. I am your God. I'm the one who delivered you from the house of slavery. They already have a relationship with God. What is that relationship based on? What is their relationship with God based on? It's based on the promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And what is the fulfillment of that promise? Who is the fulfillment of that promise? Jesus Christ. So we can say right here, the relationship the people of Israel have to God is through the promise to Abraham of the coming of the Christ. That's what their relationship is based on. Or we might say their relationship is based on faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. The Old Testament saints are saved and kept the same way you are saved and kept. So when you read Deuteronomy now, I hope you realize this isn't a book far removed from you, but rather it's a book close to you. The people in that book are saved the way you have been saved. They're saved based on the grace and goodness of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. The great example of the deliverance or redemption of God is given to them in what event in their history? They don't have the cross to look at. What are they to look at? The exodus. The exodus. God brought them out of the land of Egypt at the price of what? The firstborn of Egypt. And the protective price, the covering of the blood of an innocent lamb. A male lamb that was spotless, that was without blemish, that was their own possession. They took and slaughtered it and drained its blood to the uttermost and placed it over the doorpost and the lintels of their homes. Does that sound familiar to you? That you have been saved because you are covered by the blood of an innocent lamb? Doesn't sound familiar? Jesus Christ doesn't ring in that passage to you. He did to John the Baptist. 
Because John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus on the bank of the Jordan, said, Behold what? Say it with me. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The people in Deuteronomy are in a relationship with God based on the promise of the coming Christ. It was exemplified to them over and over and over again. One main way it was exemplified was through the Exodus. Why? Because it took the death of a lamb who was innocent, spotless, and male. It took their blood covering the doorpost so that everyone in the home was spared death. Why? Because God was teaching them. I will save you, my people, through my Son, the coming Christ. And then they plunder Egypt, the Bible says. They take all the gold, silver, and garments they can hold, and they march out to the Red Sea, and God delivers them through baptism through the Red Sea to the other side, crushes their enemy, Pharaoh and his army. And now they've traveled through the desert, We'll skip and kind of go over. And now they're here on the plains of Moab, preparing to go over in to this promised land that God has promised them. And God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he gives them very specific commands. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Verse 12, beginning of our text. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your servant, your male or female servant, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Here we have the parallel passage in 12 and 15 through 15 of Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. The same command is given the first time, Exodus 20, 8 through 11, now repeated in Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. There's a little variance between the two, and I want to bring those out for you, a little difference in the two. Exodus bases the principle of the Sabbath day on the event of creation. You shall work six days and rest on the seventh, the Sabbath, because the Lord your God created all that you see in heaven and earth on six days and on the seventh day he rested from all of his labor. Therefore you shall remember the Sabbath is what Exodus says. Why? Because God kept the Sabbath. So it draws them back to the creation story. Here in Deuteronomy, there's no mention of the creation story. What does he base their observance of the Sabbath on? 
He bases it, we see right here in the text, on verse 15. You were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What are they basing their celebration of the Sabbath on? On the fact that God created the world and everything in it in six days and rested. And, because of Deuteronomy we know, the Sabbath was celebrated because God redeemed the people from Egypt. And therefore they were to keep the Sabbath day as a reverence to His redemption. A remembrance to His goodness to them. That's going to be all important as we apply this message into our lives. They did not keep the Sabbath day only because of a creation ordinance or a creation event. They kept the Sabbath because of the creation and because of redemption. Another difference is, in Deuteronomy, he goes into much more detail than in Exodus about what shall rest. Now, it, it says the same thing, but in Deuteronomy, he goes through the detail of the livestock. Not only livestock, but your ox and your cattle and your livestock. Not only your servants, but your female and male servants, all of your servants and your sojourners. They all ought to rest along with you. And in Exodus, the Lord said that he consecrated or he made holy the seventh day. In Deuteronomy, he says, I commanded you. I gave you an order. Keep the seventh day as a day of rest and remembrance. Okay, so these differences are going to be important as we apply this into our lives. We want to deal with them later, but at this point I want you to see that though the principle is identical, the description and the reasoning is not exact. Exodus and Deuteronomy, there is variance. So what can we gain from our text in Deuteronomy? First, we should work hard all week, which brings honor to God. I see that in verse 13. Look with me at verse 13. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. God commands us in this verse that we as His people should work hard. We should work hard. Christians should be the most industrious people on the planet. Just like God's people Israel were to be industrious and hardworking, so the church should be hardworking on this earth. It shouldn't be a surprise that the Christianized cultures of the West have traditionally been the hardest working cultures in the whole world. Why? Because they are all based around, in their history, the Judeo-Christian work ethic. You ever heard that phrase, the Judeo-Christian work ethic? What that means is the Jewish and Christian work ethic. And where is that work ethic found? In our text. Verse 13, six days you shall labor and do all your work. God commands us to work. I want to tell you, if you're in this congregation today, and maybe you're tired, and you're worn out, and you're contemplating drawing uh, off of the rest of the world for your subsistence and quitting work, and just going home, and you're a young man, I want to warn you, God doesn't honor that. Unless you have some real issue where you cannot work, you should be working. I'm not talking about issues that we can get a doctor to write a prescription about. I'm talking about real life issues, debilitating issues. Outside of that, if you're a Christian, you are not keeping the gospel witness that you could have if you're at home being lazy. 
God said, work. Six days of it you shall work. And you shall do all your labor. And that's been built into the Western society for centuries, for centuries as the church has been rooted here. For over 2,000 years, the foundation of our society has been penetrated by this work ethic created by God in verses like Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 13. Work hard for six days. Even the lost world has taken in this ethic, and they have perverted the ethic. They've even made it even further. You say, what's happened in our world? We've gotten out of balance, haven't we? Because the perversion of this is that you work without stopping for rest ever. We're going to get there. You just work, work, work. You become a workaholic. That's a sin. Labor hard. Work hard. Even six days of work is good for you. It's what God has commanded, but you should rest. We're going to get there in just a minute. It's clear by this command that God is separating His people, Israel, from all the rest of the world. In the Canaanite cultures that they're surrounded by, those cultures are not known for productivity, industrial work and provision for their own selves. The Canaanite cultures were known for bands of raiders, thieves, people that ran around the countryside stealing and hoarding and killing and murdering to take other people's production. God said, you shouldn't be like the world. You should provide with your own hard work. Make for yourself a living in these six days. So, the people are not to be thieves. They're to be hardworking in the nation of Israel. But that doesn't stop in the Old Testament. That's brought over for us into the New Testament church. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 12. Just listen to this. Now we command you, brothers, in in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. And by the way, they received it from where? From the Old Testament. Paul said, don't hang around people that don't work hard. Stay away from them. Why? For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul was a hard-working brother. He worked hard and provided his own food. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Deuteronomy 5, verse 13. Six days you shall work and do all of your labor. Paul says, I'm commanding you the way I was commanded and the way we know from tradition this is the way it should be. Work hard for your own bread. Don't be a thief. Don't steal from anyone. I remember in the early days of this church when it was founded, how much it pleased me to be able to work outside of the church along with you. And many of you saw that process. You know, it it wasn't easy. I think of Dave's situation even now. He has a right to be provided for by the church. And yet, he works both here and 
at Donahoe Christian School. Why? Because he desires that you understand him to be a hard worker providing his own bread. I look at the men in the congregation here and I'm encouraged by your work ethic. So many of you. But I want to warn some of you, especially in the younger generation, that it's easy to fall into the worldly idleness that's all around you. The wastefulness that comes from the world. You can't pattern your life after your neighbor. You have to pattern your life after the Word of God. Because your neighbor, most likely, no matter where you live, is trying to get by on somebody else's dollar. He's trying to get by with the least, not the most. Listen, when you go and work hard, and you provide your own bread, so much so that you have left over to give to your neighbor, you're being a testimony to God's gospel. You're going to have open doors to preach the truth of God's Word. It's a blessing to be able to work, and God commands it. So first we see we should work hard because it brings honor to God. Second in this text, we see that we should rest on the Sabbath for the good of society and for the glory of God. Look at verse 14. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It's a day of worship. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant. What kind of work is being talked about? The common everyday work they carried out for six days. Don't do it on the Sabbath day. Sabbath day. If you're a farmer, don't sow seed on the Sabbath. Don't reap from the harvest field on the Sabbath. If you're, if you're a businessman, don't work your normal work on the Sabbath. That's what God's saying. Stop. Give yourself rest and give your livestock rest and give your servants a day to rest. And then he goes on to say, what? That this is a day of worship at the beginning and this is a day of remembrance of how God, in verse 15, has delivered you from the Egyptian slavery that you suffered under. Just as God commanded work for six days, He commanded one day for rest and said, cease from your labor." Notice that he includes every class of person. The slave, both female and male. The slave owner is to rest. All the slave owner's livestock are to take a day off. Even people visiting you from other nations are to be told, you can't sell your goods in our cities on the Sabbath day. You have to rest. Don't you know it angered all of the surrounding nations? And they look over and they see Israel teeming with wealth. And they're working seven days. Israel works six days. They're working night and day to make a hard living. And Israel's taking a day off. And her wealth is increasing as theirs is decreasing. They send their salesmen to work. And then they're told, you can't come in the city gates today to sell. Now you can come in and rest like the rest of us, but you can't sell your goods here. It's the Sabbath day. You can wait till tomorrow. We'll open back up for business. Boy, can't you imagine the difference and the distinction that was drawn by this principle of working six days and resting on the seventh. This rest was intended for the good of the people and the glory of God. The good of the people, why? Because you can work yourself into exhaustion and you can die an early death. God made us. He knows how we best operate. He knows we need time away to let our minds decompress, to let our bodies get some needed repair. 
God built it into the calendar so we might enjoy that. God is a gracious God, isn't he? He's a good God. He's not a taskmaster. He's a giving God. You know, modern time, they've done, in the industrialized world, they've done study after study after study about work patterns. How can we get the most out of our employees? You know what the overwhelming evidence points to? If we work six days and take one day off, our employees are more productive. If we run our plant six days and shut it down on the seventh, everybody's better. Do you think that's a coincidence? Do you think that's some invention of man? We couldn't have stumbled on that if we'd have tried. God wrote that into our very DNA that we operate better this way. I want to draw this now through the scripture, the lens of redemptive history, so we can see how this was applied, this principle, throughout the Bible. We've seen the principle, work hard six days, rest on the seventh. But how did the people of God accomplish this throughout their time? Nehemiah, take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah 13, verses 15 through 22. I want to show you in Nehemiah how the people interpreted what we just did, what we just held up. So I've held up for you the standard, I believe, of the Bible. Work six days, rest on the Sabbath, or the seventh day. It's based on the creation and redemption. It's both honored and hallowed and made holy, and it's commanded. Let's remember that. Nehemiah 13, that's the last chapter of Nehemiah, 15 through 22. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wines, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this society? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. The prophet of God or the worker of God is angry, isn't he? From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of of your steadfast love. So here we are. After the exile. The rebuilding of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah 
is leading the people to observe the Sabbath. He's not doing it passively, is he? He's doing it aggressively. Do you notice the aggression? If you do this again, I'm going to lay hands on you. You know, I can't wait to meet Nehemiah. Here he is standing in front of these grown men, merchants. And he tells every one of them, y'all can line up next Sabbath. If you show up here, I have my sleeves rolled up and we can get down. Don't show up here again. And it must have been pretty intimidating because they didn't show up anymore. <laughs> you know, we get these pasty white males that follow Jesus in the Bible. These were some men's men. He says, you're profaning the Sabbath day, Jerusalem, and God's going to hold you accountable for it. Haven't you learned the lesson from your forefathers? They did this and God punished them. He's going to punish you also. Don't hold it against me, God. I've kept your Sabbath. And notice that God gives us in the text the exact categories that were in the law. What does he bring out? They were treading, their servants were treading out the wine presses and they were laying heavy burdens on their donkeys, the very animal mentioned in the law. And the sojourners are coming in to sell. It's not coincidental. Where did he get that these things are wrong? From Deuteronomy. Why are they wrong? Because God hallowed the Sabbath day by resting and he commanded it because of his redemption that they keep the Sabbath day. This is another epic We've moved down the chain to the exile. We're, we're removed from the plains headed into the promised land. They've conquered the land and lost the land. And here we are. They're still observing the Sabbath. Look at Isaiah 58, verse 13. The prophet Isaiah says, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here Isaiah, again, prophesying that they should drop all work and keep the Sabbath for God to bless them. God will bless them if they will keep the Sabbath. He will feed them from His storehouse. So we have Deuteronomy, the exile, and now Isaiah, who have all, the exiled Nehemiah with the exiled people, who have all spoken in unison, keep the Sabbath day. The seventh day. So, for all of their history, the Jewish people kept Saturday as their holy day of worship. They did not work. They did nothing but worship God and give good deed and do good deeds in the name of the Lord. Okay? All right. But what about now, Carlton? Okay, so the Old Testament people kept the Sabbath. You sound like one of these blue law people. No, because there's a transformation that occurs when Jesus comes. Look at Matthew chapter 11. Let's see what Jesus has to say. And then we'll look at our history and our stance here at Grace as we close. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 through 30. And at this, that time, Jesus declared. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I want to pause there. You beat down? Are you weary today? You feel like the weight of the world's on your shoulders? You feel like you've worked and worked and worked and you're not getting any further ahead. Everything's falling behind. The more you do, the less you have. Jesus tells you, come to me. Look what he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's where the chapter divisions mess us up. Because look at the very next words in chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the what? Sabbath. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll take your yoke upon myself and you can take my yoke on you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I will give you rest, not just for your body, but for your soul. And the very next thing he does is walk through a grain field and pluck grain heads. On what day? The Sabbath day. Do you think Jesus is setting the people up? Do you think he wants to teach them something about what the Sabbath really means? These people who've kept the Sabbath for thousands of years, and he wants to teach them now what is the meaning of the Sabbath. Do you want to know what Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 15 mean? Listen to our Lord. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, the keepers of the law, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Jesus has laid the trap. Come to me if you're weary, and I will give you rest to your very soul. And then he goes intentionally through a grain field, and he knows his men are going to pick and eat. And he knows the Pharisees are going to say, Aha, you broke the law, and your people are breaking the law. Jesus wants to teach them the meaning of the Sabbath. Have you not read with David that when he was hungry and those who were with him were hungry, how they entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for them to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Or have, not, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Why? Because the priests work every Sabbath day. They worked hard every Sabbath day. Look what he says now. They broke the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What's greater than the temple? Jesus Christ. That's his conclusion. Jesus Christ is greater than the temple. And if you had known what this means, and he quotes for us Hosea 6.6, 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have known you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, not just for your body, but for your soul. So now we've moved from the old covenant where people were picturing for us rest. How did they picture it for us? They worked hard for six days and did not work on the seventh day. And now Jesus comes along, and he, on the Sabbath day, says, Come to me, and I will give you rest, Sabbath rest for your body and your soul. And he intentionally goes through the grain field, causing, provoking the keepers of the law, the Pharisees, to call his men lawbreakers so he could say to them, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm greater than the temple. I'm the fulfillment of the temple. You went to the temple to meet God? Come to me and I'll give you rest. You can meet with God. He said to them, I'm greater, by saying he's the Lord of the Sabbath, I'm greater than the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a picture of rest. I am rest. Come to me if you're weary, and I will give you rest. Now we begin to see how God has painted this picture for thousands and thousands of years through the keeping of the Sabbath for His Son so that you might know the kind of rest you receive from His Son. What kind of rest is it? It is rest for your body. It is rest for your soul. And it is rest for eternity because He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew tells us that plainly in this teaching. He looks here and says, I am your rest. What are you to do on the Sabbath day? You're to worship and you're to do good. Because in Mark, we find the uh, parallel to this passage. Look in Mark chapter 2. The parallel to the passage in, in Matthew and look what he does. Same thing happened. It's the same thing. He's going through the grain field. They're plucking grains ahead. And this is his answer. Have you never read where, what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath day they were keeping was, it had become a burden, not a rest. They sat around for hours debating about how far you could walk. They sat around for hours wondering if someone was breaking the Sabbath because their cow was out in the meadow eating grass. They, they, they were worried about all the fine points and missed the whole point. And that is, God is your rest. God is your rest. Jesus Christ now is revealing that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he will ultimately find, find, we will ultimately find our rest in Him in eternity. In Revelation chapter 22. We see the eternal rest that Jesus provides for His people. The eternal goodness that He pours out on them. The writer of Hebrews says that we not only have a Sabbath, but He is Christ. And in Him we find rest for our soul. So the Bible speaks plainly here. The Old Covenant principle, picture, type, the Sabbath is increased, is made greater by the antitype, the fulfillment, Jesus Christ. He is the Sabbath. But, now we close with the controversy. But should we still honor a day? If Jesus is our rest, then we rest and don't worry about it. 
I think that's a mistake. I think that's going too far. Look at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Something significant's happened between Matthew, the book of Matthew, and the book of Acts. That significant event is Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. When, what day of the week was Jesus raised on? What day? The first day. The first day of the week. Now, for thousands of years, the people of God rested on the seventh day. And then in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we read something totally unexpected. If we're looking from the Old Testament perspective. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, worship, Break bread, take communion. That's what's going on here. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Again, I just enter as evidence. I do not preach long sermons. Moses preached chapters 5 through 26, and Paul preached till midnight. Of course, he also had good result from that. A man fell out of a window because he fell asleep. What are they doing on the first day of the week? They've been keeping the Sabbath day on the Sabbath all these years. And now we read the first day of the week they're together. Why did they change it? What's going on here? Look at Revelation, or you you can turn there or just listen. Revelation 1, 9 through 10. John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was in, on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So Jesus shows up on the Isle of Patmos to speak with John on the Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. So thousands of years of observance of the Sabbath day on the seventh day of the week has moved now to the first day of the week. Why? Remember back in Deuteronomy, what did God base the command on? I did what? I delivered you from the slavery in the house of Egypt. The Sabbath day was based for the people of Israel on redemption. They were worshiping on the day God commanded because He redeemed them from Egypt. What is our Sabbath day then based on? Redemption. Because on the first day of the week, our redemption was raised from the dead. He was alive once again. And our salvation was secure. So listen, I think we've gone too far in our culture. We said, we're not bound by that Old Testament law anymore. I don't have to observe one day as a Sabbath day. Far from having to, do we not see the goodness of it? Do we not see the goodness of following the pattern established by our forefathers, both in, Ju- in the Jewish world and the Christian church. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 22, 
says this. This is our confession of faith. As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by His Word in a positive, moral, and a perpetual command, binding all men in all ages, He hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto Him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, Revelation chapter 1, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord. How? When men, after a due preparing of our hearts, getting ready on Friday and Saturday, Monday through Thursday, getting our hearts ready, and ordering our common affairs, our everyday work, on all the other days, then we come and observe a holy day of rest together. We rest from our work in word and thought about their worldly employment and recreation. But also, not only do we come together and worship by keeping the Sabbath, we do this, but also we take up our time in public and private exercises of worship and in duties of both necessity and mercy. For hundreds of years, the church has observed Sunday as a holy day. And they have taken up their time with acts of kindness and mercy. Worship together as the saints of God. And ceasing from work for the glory of God. Maybe, maybe we need an example. Does anybody know any businesses, national chains, that observe a Sabbath day? Do what? Chick-fil-A? Yep. Hobby Lobby. We got a crafty one in the bunch. Hobby Lobby. You think that's a coincidence? No. Go read the story of how Chick-fil-A was founded. True Kathy says, it's not worth the money I can make on Sunday to work my employees another day and to break God's Sabbath. So I'll shut all my stores down as a testimony to the work of God in my life. Now the world may laugh, but when you become a multimillionaire through the chicken industry, making chicken sandwiches, the world starts listening. In his five principles, one of the five is a day of rest. He is a testimony to the whole world of not just rest, but of rest in Christ. Every chance he's ever had, he's preached that his rest is Christ. And he preaches it every time you ride by his store and it's closed. Hobby Lobby, the same thing. They made a decision at the corporate level, we're not going to try to make money on Sunday. We're just not interested in it. If we go bankrupt, we go bankrupt. But we're going to be a testimony in this culture. You know what's sad? I was born in 1977, the year Elvis died. He died in August. I was born in November. I'm a young man, in other words. 
But I still remember when Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby wouldn't have been that abnormal. They'd have just been like everybody else in town. I still remember when you couldn't go to Walmart and you couldn't go to a restaurant. You had to go home and eat. You're looking at a man who grew up with a grandfather who did not know Jesus Christ. Or was raised on a farm. My granddad did not go to church. He never proclaimed Christ as his Savior. Jordan, what day did he not work? Sunday. Why? Because when he was being raised, his father taught him this principle. And even as a lost man, he respected the principle. So I would say this. This is my question for you, just to contemplate, just to think about. Because Paul says, some respect one day, some respect all days. I understand that. But let's just ask this question. If my lost grandfather sees the value of both rest and honoring the day, should we as Christians do less? Should we do less? I just want to challenge you just to think and just to contemplate this. Are you resting in Christ? Because if you're not, it doesn't matter if you take a day off. But if you are resting in Christ, are you showing the world that you're resting in Christ? Are you preaching it to the lost world by your actions on Sunday? By your worship and your good deeds? That's for all of us to contemplate. That's for all of us to think through. And that's for all of us to maybe be the Nehemiahs in our world and say, no longer. My family's taking a stand. We're going to show the world our faith through our observance of the Sabbath.